Welcome to the latest episode of Your Wealth with Gemma Dale, a podcast series designed to help you create, grow and protect your wealth. Hi and welcome to this episode of Your Wealth. I'm Gemma Dale, NAB Trades Director of SMSF and Investor Behaviour. In Australia, we're quietly celebrating the relaxation of strict lockdowns in Victoria in particular and hoping we can keep COVID at bay. But around the world, the picture's much, much less rosy at the moment. Today, I'm joined by Amit Loda, the Portfolio Manager of the Fidelity Global Fund, who is celebrating his 10th year managing Fidelity's flagship funds on behalf of investors around the world. Amit and I spoke late last year on this podcast. It was a brilliant conversation, but 2020 has been quite a year, nothing that anyone would have predicted. So it's wonderful to have the opportunity to speak to him again. Amit is based in London and manages or works with a team with true global reach. So they have people and analysts all over the world. He's been kind enough to give his time to share with us today how he's thinking about the future of COVID and what threats and opportunities exist for investors in this extraordinary time. Amit, thanks so much for joining me. Thank you, Gemma. It was always a pleasure to talk to you. Amit, so you're based in London and most Australian investors and most Australians in general do keep an eye on what's happening around the world. But could you talk us through what you're currently experiencing with COVID in the Northern Hemisphere? Yes, it was, um, wasn't it Dickens who said it was the spring of hope, it was the winter of despair. Um, I think in some ways, unfortunately, we are in our winter um, you know, things aren't looking very good in Europe as we speak. Um, it is likely that we'll get some more lockdowns in parts of France, Germany, and in the UK where I'm based. Uh, you know, we were always very worried about the second wave uh, hitting during the flu season. And unfortunately, it feels like the next three to four months are going to be really tough for us. If you remember earlier this year when we were thinking about covid uh, the governments were very worried about the period of February and March because, you know, that is also peak flu season. And now we have four or five months ahead of us this time around. So I think, uh, you know, things are looking tough. However, I'm hopeful that, you know, number one, therapeutics are better. Doctors have learned from each other, you know, the better treatment protocols. If you see uh, life expectancy is much better, we're putting less people on ventilators. So even though I think we have got a few tough months ahead of us, I hope that the loss of life will be much lower than what we saw during the, the terrible periods of March, April. Many of the early predictions about COVID were really, really wrong. So it's really interesting to be talking to you about what's happening at this point in time. Others were surprisingly accurate. You'll remember when COVID was getting really serious, there was talk of vaccine by the end of the year. It seems very unlikely at this point. And, uh, and I remember reading, you know, this was sort of toward the beginning when things were sort of getting very newsworthy, that the US would have 200,000 deaths and being absolutely horrified. Yeah, that number's, you know, it's behind us already. They're already well above that. You have this team of analysts and managers around the world with this extremely keen focus on the practical realities of the pandemic. And you've already mentioned therapeutics are getting better, life expectancy also getting better, which is really positive. Are you surprised by where we find ourselves? Well, you know, this has been a year which has been tremendously surprising on so many counts. Um, you know, I'd say on COVID itself, you know, when we started our work on it, uh, you know, my last trip this year was actually to, to Shanghai for a conference in January. Um, you know, so I felt fairly close to everything in February. And actually, I haven't seen my office since since really uh, February 21st, because we've been in lockdown actually much earlier than the rest of the country. 
Um, I'd say that when we were, you know, we've been talking to epidemiologists, virologists, doctors, trying to understand this pandemic. And, you know, we set up a COVID working group, uh, which is a team of uh, professionals within fidelity, doctors, but also, uh, you know, people who have an interest in science, people who have an interest in mass, who have an interest in modeling, how the virus would progress. Uh, and we've been working you know, closely together talking to doctors and professionals and anyone who's working on the virus across the world. I'd say what was clear to us in March or April was that, you know, this is, this is going to take some time. Um, it was, if you look at a vaccine, a normal vaccine takes about seven to eight years to, to produce because, you know, with a vaccine, you've got to be really careful that you don't cause more harm. You know, you're, you're in some cases injecting a live virus. In some cases, you're injecting a dead virus. But you've got to make sure that the virus does, that you inject, which is the vaccine, does not create more problems. And so, you know, the, the trials to make sure that that does not happen take a long time. This is a unique period because of COVID and we are accelerating all that development at a tremendous pace. And I'm just amazed at you know, what we've achieved in, in this short period of time. Um, so if, you, if I think about what I was expecting in March or April, I'm really happy with where we stand today, where we've got so many candidates in the pipeline. Um, we've got you know, therapies like Regeneron, which were, uh, you know, which were given on a test basis to President Trump. Clearly, he seems to have recovered really well. So, so there's a lot of therapeutics. Um, there's a you know, couple of vaccine candidates. Uh, I think the FDA is going to be looking at at least doing a review before the end of the year. Uh, remember that a lot of them have already gone into manufacturing. So, you know, because this is such a unique pandemic, people are actually producing the vaccine in spite of not yet getting approval because we want to be clear that as soon as the approval comes through, we can actually start putting these out, you know, first to the healthcare workers, you know, the, the front line, and then and try and make sure that the most uh, impacted are, are vaccinated. So I think there's an amazing amount of great stuff going on, uh, which, which to me just tells me that, you know, there's so much progress in science that we need to be grateful for. Yeah, I've mentioned many times on this podcast this year that my father's a virologist, which was, you know, an utterly irrelevant detail <laughs> up until this year and then suddenly became really interesting. Um, he's a plant virologist, not a, not a human virologist, not an animal virologist, but um, the, the fundamentals of viruses seem to be the same. And it's, um, it's been very interesting how many people have had to uh, get quickly, quickly educated about the science and how some of this stuff works. You-, yeah, you know, I think that's that's very interesting because you know I think one of the things um, which which he would be able to talk about uh, is is just the is just how these viruses are coming into into our uh, our domain. So you know, this is a zoonotic virus, which is basically it comes from animals like bats. Um, and given what's happening in terms of the, the, the population growth, you know, people living closer together uh, with, with animals, you know, this, this animal to human transfer will only increase over a period of time. And it was a matter of time that we were going to get, get a pandemic like this. You know, uh, Bill Gates has been talking about it for quite some time. A number of doctors have been talking about this for quite some time. So, so I think it is, it is something which, which is important for us to keep in mind that, you know, the, the reason, one of the reasons why, if you look at the East, say China and, you know, other parts like Korea, Taiwan have managed this so much better 
is because they have experienced these pandemics. You know, they had the SARS virus, and so they have adapted to it, and they've they've managed through it much better because they've dealt with it in the past. And you know, this is unfortunately the period that we are going through right this point of time, where we are adapting to this 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 virus. And hopefully, as we go forward, because of that adaptability, we will be able to deal with these things with a lot more fortitude the next time they hit us. Yeah, I do. I was going to skip to this question actually because when you're talking about different jurisdictions and how they've handled this. We often think of ourselves in developed nations as having sort of world-class medical facilities and health systems and so on. And yet, you know, some developing economies have done unbelievably well with this. Is that something you've been observing closely? Yeah, I think that's been one of the most fascinating developments, um, you know, to, to really observe in a real-time basis as to what is going on. And you know, being uh, being an investor and being an analyst and you know being a follower of management teams, you know, I like to use the same lens um, when when I look at what's going on around the world in terms of management of of government. So the lens that I use is, you know, whenever I'm evaluating a management team, uh, I look for you know how they they focus on on trust, how they use technology, um, and and how they work with a teamwork approach. And I think if you look at uh, countries which have managed it really well. It's been about teamwork where, you know, the, the top directs and, and everyone on the front line knows exactly what their role is. There's a trust element in terms of how everyone works. So there's a trust in the government. I see this in China where there is tremendous trust in the government. I see this in Taiwan where there's tremendous trust in the government. And I wish there was more trust in the UK uh, or in the US in terms of what the governments are trying to achieve. And then there's technology, which is the test and trace, uh, you know, making sure that if someone's got a virus, he's, he's a, a pro, he or she is, uh, you know, appropriately quarantined. Uh, anyone who's been in contact is quarantined. And that's, you know, that's where technology comes in. So, you know, a great management team for me is always one which works in combination with these three factors. And I can see that from a global perspective, that countries which have managed this well have, you know, used these three factors well. And those which have it, unfortunately, uh, need to do a better job of, of using technology and focusing on trust and focusing on teamwork. Those themes are really interesting. You know, the Australian experience, um, you know, we're very fortunate because we're a very large country. There's quite a bit of population density in Sydney and Melbourne, but otherwise it's a, it's a very large country with a relatively small population and we're an island. But the UK is also an island, right? And you guys have had a very different experience to us. Yeah, indeed. I think it is, it is uh, you know, I think the, the difficulty is it's very difficult to tell in it's it's easy to sit in an armchair and analyze anything in hindsight. I you know I talk about that all the time when I'm looking at my stock picks, because you you can never really tell what the decisions that you took at that point of time were related to the environment, related to the inputs, related to all these factors. So it's it's you know it, this is a really tough environment. Uh, I, I don't want to get second guess anybody, but you know we have good relative comparisons of certain countries which have done well and certain countries which haven't done well. Uh, you know, if I take Germany as a case in point, you know, the first wave, it did extremely well. But as you can see with the second wave, uh, they are struggling a bit more. So I don't think that we have the right answer yet. Um, you know, we, we think we do, but we, we actually don't. And we could just, you know, uh, try and get a sense of how best to make sure that we protect our populations, we protect the livelihood, listen to the doctors, you know, make sure that we're taking care of the basics of wearing a mask, you know, practicing good hygiene, uh, 
you know, trying to socially distance and and countries which have practiced those things, which have you know had a steady and consistent message from their governments, which they have trusted, actually have done a much better job because the population has worked with the government to to sort things out. That's really interesting. Um, you know, trust in governments in the West, yeah, it's lower than you would imagine it might be. Uh, given how fortunate we all are, right? You know, we, we live in, uh, you know, highly functional societies and yet trust is quite low and nothing exposes that like the experience that we've had, which has been really interesting. Do you have a thesis about where we go from here? You know, you're talking about the likelihood of a vaccine. Uh, it, it's spoken about frequently that we've never developed a successful coronavirus vaccine, but we've probably never tried on a scale anything like this. You know, what that means for return to normal activity levels and so on? Yeah, I think, you know, that's a really fascinating question. I think, you know, last time we spoke, um, you know, I talked about the fact that, you know, whenever there's a change in decades, um, you know, things change. And I wish I was wrong about that because I hadn't expected everything to change within six months of, of, uh, of chatting with you. So I think, you know, what COVID has done, has, it has accelerated a lot of changes. So if you think about technology, for example, you know, our adoption of technology has accelerated, you know, shopping online, e-commerce, being on Zoom, uh, you know, talking to each other. Those are the things which we would not have anticipated ourselves doing six months back. And, you know, COVID's been a massive accelerant of those changes. There are some other areas which, you know, COVID has brought to the fore in, in stark uh, daylight, which is, you know, the inequalities, the issues of you know managing for for those who are going through a covid crater so if you look at the hospitality industry if you look at the airline industry if you look at people who work in those industries you know we, we need to do a lot more to to make sure that they're taken care of and in some cases those who have been uh, you know put out of jobs because of you know what's happened with technology and e-commerce or will be put out of jobs in the future we need to do a lot more for them so i think you know what what's clear to me is that we need to really work through a lot over the next three to five years. Uh, the, the virus is just step one. Hopefully we get a vaccine, maybe not in the next three months, but in the next six months, definitely. I think I'm hopeful we will get something with at least a 50% efficacy. Um, and you know, that should allow for some return to normality. If the, um, if the therapeutics work, then people can get comfortable that, you know, the risk of life is very low from this virus. Yes, you get it. You, you know, you have some long-term uh, issues for some people, but for most people, I, I think you can, you can be comfortable that we've now found therapeutics which will take care of you. So we can hopefully return to some normality. But when we return to that normality, there are some big issues that will be facing us, which is the size of the debt that we have on our balance sheets globally, climate change, which remains a pressing problem, inequalities. You know, the list is long for whoever wants to really become the next U.S. president and, and try and solve some of these issues. I think a lot of people will hear your comments about six months for a vaccine and feel really positive about that. Though your point about 50% efficacy is very interesting. So most people think of a vaccine as 100% effective. I'm vaccinated and I don't have to worry about this again. So the idea that half of those vaccinated won't, uh, won't necessarily be able to count themselves in the group who don't 
get it. Maybe they get a much milder form, perhaps. Uh, I have the weirdest experience in that I've been vaccinated for chickenpox three times and I still don't have any immunity to it. <laughs> so I was loosely aware that you can get vaccines that don't always work. Um, but the idea that once we have a vaccine of any level of efficacy that we can start sort of transitioning back to work uh, and back to normality. Are there things that you feel are irreparably damaged is a terrible word, but they're in the past as a result of COVID. You know, the transition to online shopping is an interesting one where plenty of businesses that were doing 10 or 20% of their business online and 80% in store now have the opposite metrics. Do you see those sorts of trends as sort of highly disruptive? Yeah, I think, you know, it's, um, it's clear to me that things are changing and things are changing at a rapid pace. Um, I think, you know, when we look back in five or 10 years, we'll, you know, we'll have the conversation that, you know, this was so blindingly obvious. Uh, but at this point of time, you know, it is, it is shrouded in a fog. Um, but I have some ideas about, you know, things which, which may not, not go back to normal. If I look at my corporate travel, for example, you know, I spent a week, maybe two weeks a month on an airplane, uh, you know, meeting companies on behalf of my investors, you know, trying to find the great stock idea in different parts of the world. And now with Zoom, I don't think I'm going to be doing that at that rate, you know. And I think, uh, you know, whenever I've been in Australia, I've been surprised by by the number of flights between Melbourne and Sydney. I mean, you know, you have a flight every 15 minutes. It's amazing that all the flights are full throughout the day. People are traveling for one-hour meetings and two-hour meetings back and forth because it was, you know, just so easy. And I think, you know, Macquarie Airports or Qantas never expected uh, a technology company to be a threat to their business models. But, you know, Zoom has been being something like that. We've always had video calling, but, you know, with, with COVID, we've discovered the productivity benefits of, of being able to, to do a lot of the work that we try and do sitting in our homes or sitting now in the future in our offices. So I think, you know, there is certain elements like corporate travel, which I think will be a lot lower than what they used to be in the past. And then there's certain things like e-commerce, you know, utilizing the convenience of an Amazon um, or online shopping with, with, uh, with the with retailer that you want to work with, which will accelerate over a period of time. And I think as we observe how we all come out of this crisis, you know, those, those will be really important things. There's one other point I wanted to make to your earlier point on your chickenpox vaccine. Um, and I think it's a very important point about, you know, how we need to think about managing through this crisis. Um, you know, I've talked about personalization in the past um, as related to, to Amazon and Google because of the personalized service that they offer us that, you know, you, you go and search for something on Amazon and your results are very different from my results. I think that personalization has to come into medicine. Um, you know, there's, there's a lot of research which has told us that how each of us react to this virus is very different. And we've been doing that research because we've been surprised by the fact that, you know, some people have COVID and don't show any symptoms. And there are others who were perfectly healthy beforehand who, you know, have suddenly, you know, massive lung problems, diarrhea, liver issues, you know, you, you, uh, heart issues brain fog, uh, all these kind of issues. And, and we've been trying to understand why that is the case. And actually, there's a really interesting paper on Regeneron's website, which, uh, which is one of the companies, you know, working on, on the therapeutics, which talks about the fact that our genetics decide how we react to each of these, uh, these viruses. And this is why the way you react, Gemma, is going to be very different from the way I react. 
Uh, and so this is why, you know, that 50% efficacy is important because we're trying to bring 50% of the people back to work and that's a great start. Uh, but it also tells us that we need to understand the vaccine, we under need to understand the virus, we need to understand the interplay of both of those with each of our own genetics. And this is why I think, you know, genetics as a field, understanding the human body, the age of technology moving to the age of science is, is something that I think is, is, is likely over the next 10 years. That's so fascinating. And so there's been a little bit of talk about the personalization of medicine and sometimes it comes out of Silicon Valley and it comes out of these places. And it's easy to take it with a grain of salt and not get too interested. But in the current environment, it's a real live issue, no pun intended. Like it's really important. Yeah, I think that's that's absolutely right. And I think, you know, I think this is what gives me hope also for the future, which is that, you know, if we've solved the virus in a certain factor, um, you know, using that personalization, using the genetics, using that, you know, the individual genome or DNA and trying to map the, the, the cure to your and my individual dynamics. You know, what can we learn for other diseases? What can we learn from that about cancer research? What can we learn from that about Alzheimer's? So, you know, I think the, the knock-on of, of COVID will be really positive for future research because we're putting so much money, time, knowledge, intelligence behind understanding these dynamics, which will no doubt, you know, give us dividends in, in other areas. So I'm hopeful that, you know, that's, that's how the, the, the path will look like going forward. I think that's such an interesting point. I was fortunate enough to um, to watch a, a webinar that you did recently for professional investors, uh, and the comment was made by one of your analysts, or I imagine portfolio managers, uh, that there's been a real underinvestment in infectious diseases, heavy, heavy investment in degenerative disease like cancer. You know, we, everyone's contributing to that all the time. Uh, and yet infectious diseases we haven't spent a lot of time or money on. Do you see that changing? Yeah, I think that's that's definitely the case. I think whether you're a Democrat or a Republican or, you know, whether you support Labour or Tory, I think one thing is clear that investment in health infrastructure, investment in understanding diseases, investment in understanding how the human body works, I think will 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 get supercharged as we come out of COVID. And I think that investment is the need of the hour because we cannot have another uh, pandemic hurting us the way it has done so. So I think, you know, governments will put infrastructure in place. I think the private sector will put a lot of uh, money and time and science behind it. And I'm hopeful that we'll, we'll see a lot more of that. But, you know, I think uh, Judith was absolutely right when she said uh, about the underinvestment in, in, in infectious disease research. It's really interesting because it's not as uh, sort of vote-worthy as investing in defence, for example. Um, you know, you go and buy a submarine and it makes for a really fantastic story. Um, you know, nice front page. Uh, doesn't help anybody in the short term much other than a submarine manufacturer. Uh, and yet all of this investment in science is, is very critical, takes a long time, it's very expensive and it's quite boring if you want to get time on the news, which many politicians do. So if we can see an uplift there, that would be very interesting. But also your point about private companies investing, that they can see an incentive and a profit margin that's going to be sufficient to make that worth their while. Yeah, I think, you know, there is there is the private sector capital, but there's also the philanthropic capital, which is very, very significant now. You know, if you look at the Gates Foundation, what they're doing, other foundations which are working with the Gates Foundation, I think there's a lot of capital addressed 
towards solving these critical issues, towards understanding what we're doing. You know, we're we're trying to go to space and you know um, colonize Mars, and I think that's extremely important because the research there leads to some you know positive benefits in other areas. But I think there's a lot to be done to understand the basics of the human body, which we still don't really fully understand. If you take a disease like Alzheimer's, for example, we are still struggling to understand what is it really that causes Alzheimer's? Why do some people get it? Why do some people not get it? Why do some people have remission in cancer while others don't? Why do some people react to some drugs in a particular way while others don't? And it, to me, it all screams personalization that we need to understand each, that each of us are different and therefore we need to make tailor make the solution differently for each of us. And if, if we can create an infrastructure, we can create science behind it, I think that's, that's really positive for, uh, for lifespans and, and just for happiness for, for, for all of us. This is, it's also fascinating. Um, it's so interesting to think about all of these different things. One thing, so if we come back to markets and investments for a moment, one thing that has astonished many of us is how quickly uh, and how strongly the US market has recovered this year. How are you guys thinking about that? You, you know, there were obviously buying opportunities for a few weeks and then things changed really fast. Yeah, this has been an amazing, uh, amazing, amazing time in the markets. Uh, you know, back in March when we were, you know, staring in the eye of the storm of the pandemic, uh, or even actually, you know, even last year, uh, you know, when we were having the conversation, if Gemma, you had told me that I predict that there will be a virus um, which will shut down most countries around the world, um, where Amit, you will never not be able to go back to your office um, from February onwards. Economies will be shut down. Uh, airplanes will not fly. I bet you I would not have turned around and said, well, Gemma, I expect the NASDAQ to be up 20% because of what you've just said. Um, so this has been such a fascinating year in, in terms of just navigating this period uh, day by day, month by month, because the data has been interesting, the understanding of the virus has been interesting. I think what's, what to me, what's really fascinating about this period, what surprised me immensely, is the strength of the U.S. consumer. So normally when we have recessions, you know, the governments react to the recession after the recession which is that you get all the money printing, you get all the fiscal stimulus after the recession. In this, um, in this period, it's been coincidental or coincident because uh, governments have realized that by shutting down the economy, they are going to impact growth, they're going to impact GDP growth, they're going to impact employment, they're going to impact wages. And so they have augmented all of that with with uh, with transfers, uh, with monetary transfers. So coming out of this crisis, what's fascinating to me is that the U.S. consumer through this crisis is about three hundred billion dollars richer than when they went into this crisis. We've never had a recession where the consumer comes out richer, and you can see that with you know housing transactions. You can see that with you know people buying cars because you know people are actually feeling a lot more wealthy. There are two reasons for it. One, because of the the personal transfers, but also the fact that we've all had savings because we've not been able to go out to restaurants, we've not been able to go out for our holidays, we've not been able to spend on the things that we normally would have spent on. And that's all created this period of excess savings, which has actually meant that the health of the consumer is actually much better than you and I would have anticipated sitting in March and thinking about the recession. And that's all down to what the governments have done. And 
in in some ways that's also fed into the markets where you know if people have had a little bit of an excess savings they've said you know what can i do with this i'm not going to spend on anything significant i'm not going to go on a holiday let me invest it in the markets let me buy some bonds let me buy some debt or let me buy some equities and that is the impact that we see in the equity markets as we speak at this point of time again fascinating and something that no one would have anticipated in march in my belief yeah, it's been absolutely extraordinary. <laughs> um, in Australia, the um, the ASX 200 is not back above its highs, so it's uh, sitting a bit less than 20% off its highs. So we haven't had the same uplift, but we don't have that heavy tech sector, and there's obviously been a handful of stocks in the US really dragging up the entire entire index um fascinating that tesla is not in the index because if it were it would be sitting even higher um so it's been quite quite extraordinary to watch are you seeing risk at these levels do you think there's been a dramatic pull forward of demand that's not uh not going to continue as a result of all the stimulus that it will dissipate I think that's that's the billion dollar question in terms of how the consumer reacts to to all of this. Um, you know, I, I think there are two or three interesting threads to to what you just said. I think valuations are high. There is no doubt about it. But you know, that's relative to the history of the markets, uh, the equity markets. Valuations are high. If you compare valuations to bonds, then on a relative basis, equities still look fairly decent value because you know with bonds you're not getting much return, whereas you still have equities giving you a decent yield. You've got you know companies giving you decent dividend yields or good earnings yields over a period of time. So I think you've got to keep that in context when you're looking at the relative valuations of of you know where where do you put your wealth to make sure that you get a decent return in five or ten years' time. So I think that's that's kind of point number one. I think point number two is that this pandemic has told us that there are a lot of things that we need yesterday. Um, so, you know, we need a lot more e-commerce capacity. Uh, you know, climate change tells us that we need a lot more uh, technology behind renewables. So, you know, the, a lot of people kind of look at valuations and analyze them only as, you know, high valuations or low valuations and don't ask the question about why is that valuation high? Now, what the market is telling you, the signal that the market is giving you is that I need a lot more Teslas because I need a cleaner world. And therefore, the cost of capital of Tesla is really low and the returns on Tesla and what Tesla does is really high because I want more competition to come in. I'm incentivizing more people. I'm incentivizing VW and General Motors that look at the valuations that I'm giving to Tesla. Can you guys do the same thing? And then the market's turning around and looking at Exxon and saying, actually, I don't need so much of your energy. So I'm going to give you a very low valuation because I don't want you to invest more money in bringing oil out of the ground. Now, whether that is right or wrong, that's a separate thing. But you have to understand why the market is making these decisions. And these are very important capital allocation decisions, because if, for example, the reason you've got the vaccine companies trading at these valuations is because the market is saying that we need a vaccine and there is a cost to not having a vaccine. So I want to incentivize producers to produce vaccines. That is what high valuations really mean. And it's a capital allocation decision. Now, as an investor, you've got to decide whether you want to play that game and you know, play those high valuations. But from a market perspective, 
directionally, I don't disagree that you know climate change is a huge problem, and you know Tesla is part of the solution for that. Battery manufacturers are part of the solution for that. I hope you and I don't disagree that we need a vaccine, and therefore you know that needs to be incentivized. So, so I think we need to to just keep that in context when we are thinking about high valuations. I think you make an excellent point there. Uh, that the things that are doing well are generally. Uh, where we believe the market is going. If we talk about the market being forward-looking, it feels very forward-looking at the moment, very forward-looking, which is not a bad thing. And I think also a lot of us have had a bit of an education. I think early in my career, I had a strong value investing bent and this idea that you should always try to buy things below their fundamental value. Uh, And nothing like the last couple of decades to make you realise that the fundamental value of things can change. And it can change a lot in a decade. <laughs> you know, the, the way people work and what they do and the things that they value does change over that period. So the fact that you bought something cheaply doesn't mean that it's going to revert to a higher price. It just means no one wants it anymore. That's been quite an interesting lesson. Yeah, no, I think you're you're absolutely right. You know, and, and I think this is this is what capitalism does. This is what technology does over a period of time. You know, there are some things that we need and there's some things we need more of. And and it's the market's job to to try and incentivize that in some ways. You know, that is the real market job. You know, in, in some ways, to me, the market is always a temple of learning because it's always there to teach you. Uh, a lot of people treat it as a casino to get in and out, you know, invest in one stock and then move to another stock. And if, if you treat it as a casino, you know, you will have the experience of a casino, which is the house always wins. If you treat it as a temple of learning, then, you know, there's a lot that the market can teach you about the economy, about the markets, about companies, about interesting things going on around the world. Um, and I think this period has been very fascinating in some ways because I've seen that a lot of people have been interested in coming back into the market. You've seen the the retail investor engaging again with the market. I think there are some risks. There are definitely some risks, but it is the approach that you take to the markets, I think, which is very important. If you're in to make a fast buck, I think you're going to lose. But if you're in there to learn and after learning to try and invest logically in in things which we all need for the future, um, and if you look at companies that we trust, if you find companies that, that we all can trust, if you find managers that we all can trust, then you're likely to do well, you know, seven times out of 10 if you've done your work. So, so I think, you know, in, in that sense, I'm really happy that markets are attracting new participants, attracting new, new companies. You know, there are so many companies which were coming to markets much later in their life cycle uh, because of the the amount of private equity there. And, you know, recently, because of high valuations, we've had some really phenomenal companies listing in the markets. We, you know, we have Ant Financial coming to the markets sometime this, uh, this week. We've had Snowflake. We've had uh, Unity. There's some really interesting companies which have come to the market. Now, I think there's a risk in their valuations and that valuations are very high. As you said, you know, there's, there's anticipation of, of high... Uh, high future returns. And I think we all need to think very carefully about those risks. But, you know, what I feel really good about is now they're on my side of the fence. Previously, I could not invest in them because they were all in the private space. Now they're in the public space. At some point of time, over the next three, five years, I will get a chance to invest in them because, you know, the market goes up, the market goes down. And that to me is is great because, you know, I have the ability to partner with some great management teams over the next few years because now they're on my side of the fence. 
So you were talking about things that people need more of, and clearly many investors think they need more stocks and more people who were not investors now believe they need to invest. So uh, we've seen the same thing here. We've seen this enormous influx of new retail investors. Um, and I've spent the last week giving presentations to people who were asking, you know, is retail the dumb money? If we look at our data about what people are investing in, they've been so prudent. It's extraordinary. They're buying, you know, very simple investments, the sort of stuff your mum would have told you to buy, that kind of thing. So we've been reasonably impressed, actually, with the decisions made by retail investors in the last six to nine months. The only thing that concerns me is that uh, if you've never lost money before, and if your first experience of investing is making 50%, you might not enjoy the next few years. You might find them a bit disappointing after your first experience. You must be feeling like a genius right now if you started in March. And our biggest influx of new investors is in March and April. That was when they started buying. I think you, you, know, you raise an excellent point. And I think that is the biggest risk. In, in fact, you know, that's the risk for every fund manager. You know, whenever the fund is doing extremely well and you're feeling like a genius, you know, that's, the, that's the point that you need to be most worried about your fund, about your picks because the market always teaches you humility over a period of time. So, you know, you don't want that lesson too soon. You know, I, I started as an investor in, in 2000. You know, it was the school of hard knocks, um, you know, through the, the tech crisis and the tech bubble of 2000. I became a portfolio manager in 2008. Uh, you know, I was running our energy funds just in time for the Lehman crisis. Um, and, you know, in, in, when I was going through those periods, I, you know, I fervently wish that I wasn't in that position because it was so tough. But it was it was a great learning experience to, to learn from underperformance, to learn from losing money, because I think it builds your process uh, and it, it, it makes you a better investor. So I think you're absolutely right that a lot of people who have made uh, money in a short period of time might think of the market as a casino. And that creates risks for the market, that creates risks for their wealth. We you know, may be going through a pretty volatile period over the next three to six months as we navigate all the uncertainties that, that lie ahead of us. And I think you know, it is, uh, but, but, but to your point that they are now all involved in equities, to my mind, is a really good thing because, well, you know, health is important. I think financial health is also equally important. So one thing you guys have done, and I found it really uh, impressive reading this. You have broken down your thinking about where we are and in the future into three buckets. Can you talk us through that? I think people would get immense value out of hearing it. Yeah, so you know, in 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 March, um, when I was thinking about a game plan of navigating uh, this uh, this period, you know, I wrote a note uh, for the investors called the three bucket plan. Um, and basically, what I said is that uh, you know, this is a period of uncertainty. None of us know how we will navigate this period. We have no clue on vaccines. We have no clue on how long this virus will stay with us. So let's let's kind of think about the market in three periods. Forget value versus growth or defenses versus cyclicals. But actually, let's let's think about the market in kind of three periods. So phase one is the virus period, which we are all continuing to live through. And you know, think about the companies which do well during the virus phase. So those are things like you know, which all of us use a lot more of in the lockdowns. I'm sure, you know, Gemma, you're watching a lot more of Netflix. Um, if you've got little kids, they might be spending a bit more time on their iPads, playing video games. You know, so those things tend to do much better as we are all in our homes. Um, you know, we are all nesting in our homes, so we are spending a lot more time on home goods. You know, people are spending money on paintings, wall fittings, you know, doing a lot more DIY in their homes because they're spending a lot more time in, in the house. And so that's kind of companies which do well in that phase. 
Now, if you take this period as a wartime scenario, typically in wars, the recessions come after the war. So the second phase that you need to think about is the recession phase. And I think that is still, to me, a risk that, you know, the recession that we saw uh, for a short period of time in April and May and June is not the real recession, and the real trouble lies ahead. The real trouble lies when, you know, governments start uh, taking the stimulus away. So once we get a vaccine, do we really need the stimulus at these extents? You know, once people start returning back to work, do we need to continue to make transfers into their bank accounts? And so when that starts to go away, when that morphine starts to be taken away, you know, that's the time that you start feeling a little bit of pain, which is that recession phase. And in that phase, you want to own companies which have consistency and stability of earnings. So, you know, your consumer staple companies, you know, we'll always go out and brush our teeth, whether we are at home or we're going outside. So, you know, those daily necessity uh, kind of product companies, uh, whether, you know, we need our broadband, we'll always need our broadband. So your telecom companies, you know, those tend to do really well in, in that phase. And then after that phase, we get the recovery phase, which is um, you know, what happens once things get back a bit more to normal, we all start returning back to a normal way of life, or, you know, as something different from what, what, what some people would call the new normal, and that's the recovery phase. And there'll be stocks which will do well in that phase, you know, so things uh, which are more uh, akin to those which will do well when there's a lot of fiscal stimulus, so, you know, the governments are looking to build more roads, more housing, you know, all of those would, would I would classify in, in kind of the, the recovery bucket. So if you think about your portfolio in these three kind of terms, I think it gives you a diversified mix of things and does not make you think about, uh, you know, whether we're going into a growth phase or a recession phase, we don't know. We don't know how long this virus will last. So we have to invest with a view of that uncertainty. And I think having a diversified portfolio, at least for me, has allowed me to navigate this period you know, uh, on, on behalf of the investors in a much better way because I've not tried to predict the big macro questions. I've not tried to second guess when we get the vaccine or who you know, comes into the White House. I think those are very difficult questions to answer. But I know which companies will do well in each phase. And having a broad basket of these companies, I think, allows me to navigate this period, making sure that I have my feet in, in every market segment, irrespective of which market segment comes through. And once I gain conviction that we've got a vaccine which works, which everyone is willing to take, where we have the logistics to make sure that everyone gets it, then I will feel much more comfortable getting rid of this framework and developing a new framework. It's very helpful to have a framework in this environment. I think a lot of investors have, certainly in Australia, people have just been doing really well without a lot of the framework. <laughs> you know, they've just been doing well and that's all great. Um, but as as the market starts to track sideways and there's, there's less excitement, having uh, some clarity about where you're planning to go from here can really help people. So I think that that framework of thinking is just incredibly valuable. You know, I think, Jenna, one, one other point is that, you know, if I look at 10 or 15 years back, uh, you know, there was a real informational advantage that professional investors had because, you know, we had access to management teams, you know, they would talk to us and we get a sense of what they were thinking. 
uh, you know, with the advent of technology and Sarbanes Oxley, I think that has been completely democratized. You sitting in Australia or sitting in rural India have access to the same information that I do. You can go onto YouTube, you can go onto Twitter. If I look at the kind of research that people are putting out on individual stocks on Twitter or on IPOs, it is just phenomenal and it's free. So, you know, I think that information advantage that you have now has gone away. And I think everyone is on the same level playing field, which allows retail investors to actually do their work, do their homework, read the annual reports, read all the disclosures, you know, listen to the YouTube videos of the CEO, and then decide whether they, they want to invest with them over a period of time. So I think, you know, that democratization of finance, um, you know, obviously it makes my job harder, but I think it is tremendously useful for so many investors around the world. I've made the same point, actually. I make that point quite frequently. I like to tell people that the first trade I ever placed, I had to look up a stockbroker in the yellow pages. I think there's an equivalent in the UK. You know, that big fat book that had all the businesses advertised in it. Everyone got a copy. Um, I had to look up a broker. It cost me about $100 to place a trade. And I had to look up the share price from yesterday in the newspaper. I mean, retail investors were the dumb money 20 years ago. <laughs> we had no idea what we were doing. It was really difficult. And now the opportunity set is global and the information available to us is global. And it's, as you say, it's free and it's incredibly timely and it's so sophisticated compared to what it used to be. I think where investors, retail investors get the most value from professional management is when they look beyond Australia. So Australian investors are pretty active um, and they feel pretty confident managing their home portfolios. But when you're managing money around the world, that's an entirely different scenario. I mean, most of us have a pretty limited, you know, most, most Australians realised that the Indian stock market had done incredibly well pretty much when it peaked and it had been doing really well for 15 years and then we kind of realised and then it started to fall away. Uh, so that's the sort of stuff that we don't have uh, as good a grasp on it, uh, which does lead into my next question because the one thing I would love to know, and I know everyone listening loves to hear this question, is where are you looking for opportunity now, given everything that's happening, both geographically and in terms of sector, what do you find most interesting? Yeah, I think there is, um, you know, that's, that's the one that gives me hope uh, because I think COVID has accelerated so many changes that, uh, that I think there is a lot going on around the world. Um, which we're seeing the contours of, but as I said, we're still trying to frame exactly how it works. So I think technology as a sector remains interesting, but I think everyone knows that fairly well. So I'm actually finding a little less interest in those. I think there's a, you know, there's a, there's a thinking that I have over there on incumbency, which is, um, you know, if you look at, um, say, Roger Federer or Rafael Nadal, you know, they've been um, in their positions for now 15 years, 20 years, you know, winning French Open after French Open or Wimbledon after Wimbledon. And you think, why is that the case? And once you're at the top, you know, you can afford to invest in new technologies of, you know, understanding your game. You can, you know, afford to invest in an entire team behind you. And, you know, um, when, when Rafa won the French Open, you know, um, uh, Roger Federer uh, congratulated him and said, you know, congratulations to your entire team because I know no one can do this alone. And, you know, that just shows you the importance of that entire team behind that incumbent. And, and that only the top 15 or 20 tennis players can do. And I think if you take that into the corporate world, that is a huge incumbency factor, which is there in the likes of the Apples and the Googles and the Facebooks, where, you know, because they are so successful, success begets success. 
and you know so that's one part of the market which i think we have to keep in mind and 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 you know remain interested in in because you know these companies continue to solve uh, really pressing problems you know provide convenience like amazon does so i think that's that's to me of of interest uh, the other area that is of interest and i've talked about this is is the health side i think you know we will to me this is an age of science um, so it's what are the problems that science can solve and you know most of the things that i'm looking to invest in or i'm interested in doing more work are uh, you know coming at the junction of technology and a big problem that we are trying to solve so if you take climate change you know it's renewables it is you know autonomous vehicle it is electric car batteries it is the battery manufacturers it is the solar companies which you know which are doing amazing things on the renewable side which are of interest to me on the healthcare side it is you know companies which are digitizing healthcare you know fulfilling simple needs like electronic medical records you know one of the reasons why we're finding it so tough to do that personalization is because we don't have an individual medical record of you and me and you know how we've reacted to different diseases in the past and again technology can you know make some improvements over there genomics as a field can make some improvements over there so you know there's some really interesting stuff uh, which is going on in in that sector and then then i'd say that finance overall i think is is ripe for disruption you know if i look at what's happening in china um and use that as a road map for uh, for the rest of the world in terms of what they're thinking about digital currencies you know how they're thinking about you know how alibaba and and financial work i think to me that is the future and you know we are going to get it in the west and companies which can use technology to to make finance simple uh make it more personalized for our uh for our consumers you know make it more democratic we'll do extremely well uh and so again that's another space that that is of interest to me so you know really when i look at things from a global perspective on a sectoral basis there's so much going on if i look at you know emerging markets as a case in point uh you know they've been really tested through this crisis um you know what uh you know what talib calls anti fragile which is if you come out of a crisis stronger then you know that's that effectively makes you even stronger you know what doesn't uh, kill you makes you stronger as as president trump says and you know if you see the resilience of some of these emerging markets i think that should give a lot of investors comfort that you know they are no longer the emerging markets of the 1999s um and the asian financial crisis so i think there's opportunities in some of those markets so so there's a lot going on in the world which which really interests me at this point of time that's a, that's a broad range of things it's so interesting i think the the disruption in finance is going to be a very interesting one to explore and i'm looking forward to talking to you about that in the future final question what do you see as the biggest risks for investors in the current environment i think that's a that's a fascinating question because i think you know there's obviously this is a very uncertain environment um you know if you look at the amount of money printing that is going on one has to be really careful about thinking about both protection of your pricing power protection of your savings and growing your savings so i think um you know thinking about investments as a store of value and then a growth of value is very important for investors and you know pocketing your investments in in those two uh i think is is something that people need to spend more time thinking about especially where governments have made it very clear that they will do whatever it takes to to get us out of this crisis um so i think that's that's kind of risk number 1 which is you know the risk to our, to to our wealth and the pricing power of our wealth because of inflation um i think the other risk uh, you know there there are other risks that people talk about which is geopolitics 
you know, who's going to be the next president. And to me, you know, those I think I can fairly think about, fairly, you know, put into context, you know, it's, it's going to be either Trump or Biden, you know, there are no other two candidates, we fairly know what they're going to be doing. So in the next, you know, month or two, we'll get a fair idea of how all of that figures itself out. And we can create portfolios and scenarios which, which work in, in either of those scenarios. To me, the biggest risk that I spend time thinking about is the risk of the unknown, you know, as we navigate through this crisis. And to me, that is, you know, one of the things that I've been thinking a lot more about when I talk to my companies, um, when I talk to, to my colleagues, it is this, this period is really unique in terms of how we are all dealing with it. And, you know, every crisis brings something unique, um, where, which creates some unanticipated things. If you take the 9-11 crisis, um, you know, we, we had the, the take your shoes off moment before you get onto a flight. Uh, and 19 years later, we're still taking our shoes off. So, you know, there's some crises which cause some long-term changes. And I think COVID leads to some long-term changes, which we're trying to think about, and also some short-term changes. The short-term change that worries me the most is, is the ambiguous loss that we're all going through and its impact on all of us. So what do I mean by that? It's, it's the mental health impact of going through this crisis and how we deal with it. That to me is, is in some ways the biggest risk, which I don't have a handle on or don't exactly know how to think about it. Um, and you know, there's some really good articles which Gemma, you know, probably share with you, um, which you can share with your listeners, which talk about unambiguous law, which talk about ambiguous loss. Uh, and the point of ambiguous loss is, is that you know, when, when we lose a loved one, we know exactly why we are unhappy. But you know, when we when we lose the ability to go to that local coffee shop that we always went to, you know, on our way to work, or to have that conversation with a with a colleague, or to feel angry with the with the way our governments are reacting to COVID, you know, it causes changes in in us. It you know, it makes some of us more conservative. It makes some of us more liberal. You know, people's political dynamics change as they're staying at home. So I think all of these, you know, create. Um, new opportunities, but also new challenges over the next few years. And, and this mental health issue, I think, which our kids are dealing with, which our colleagues are dealing with, which you know, I know every CEO is thinking about as they are thinking about their employee morale, as they're thinking about how we navigate this period, to me is really the biggest risk, which, which I personally don't have an exact handle to. And you know, the, the reason I really like this article is, is it because it, it kind of clarifies to me certain things about, you know, a lot of people say, you know, why are schools open for kids? We should close the schools. And for kids, you know, it's such an important issue because, you know, they cannot always verbalize what I've just said about mental health. And, you know, they'll feel it, but they won't be able to say it. And, and, and you can see that in their behaviors, you know, I've got two young daughters and, you know, they've, they've had an interesting experience through this lockdown period where they've not been able to, you know, meet with their friends and do play dates. So I think that mental health issue and how it impacts us as a society, how it impacts our thinking, to me, is the big risk that, uh, that I definitely want to spend more time thinking about. I think that's a really powerful way to finish. And it also, I would 
funny story to tell. So my daughter is four and a half and she goes to preschool. Uh, and so we had a brief lockdown. It was only six or eight weeks. And, um, and this is a great example of a problem that technology can't solve, right? So for eight weeks, she couldn't see any of her friends and we stayed at home and we didn't, you know, if we waved to friends as they went past, that would be okay. But we, we couldn't play with them or anything, which is quite hard for her to understand. And so one of the teachers at preschool thought it would be a fabulous idea if they did a like class Zoom chat. Yeah, Let me tell you that Zoom is not a solution for 19 four-year-olds. It's not a solution. They all wandered around the house. The phones were all facing the ceiling. They all talked at the same time. It was very, very funny and very, very unsuccessful. We were very thrilled oh. when she could go back to preschool. It was lovely. Yeah, I think, you know, for, for kids, you know, this is why I think so many governments, you know, there's there's good research behind why people have taken the decision to keep schools open. Uh, I see it in some emerging markets and some developed markets where they've decided to close schools. And I think, you know, this, these are really important decisions which have no right or wrong answers, which, you know, unfortunately, politicians and governments have to take at this point of time. And while we can blame them, you know, I don't envy their jobs of these difficult decisions that they, they need to take at this point of time on incomplete information. Yeah, it's a really, um, it's a really tough one. We're, we're very fortunate here. Amit, the thinking you put into uh, your insights and the research that you produce is next level. It's absolutely amazing. And the, the global reach that you guys have and, and how you put those ideas together and present them to investors are just brilliant. Could you tell anyone listening how they can keep up to date with your thoughts and the insights that you're publishing? Yeah, I think, you know, my colleagues um, and I put out a fair amount of thinking around, you know, what we are seeing around the world, what we're seeing in markets, uh, you know, what we're seeing on COVID, uh, what we're seeing in interesting areas like digital currencies. And they're all available on the Fidelity Australia website under the Insights section. So if you either Google up uh, Fidelity Insights or, you know, fidelity.co.au, I think you can, uh, you know, find, find them all on the website. Thank you. Don't go to .co.uk. Well, I mean, you can find it there too, but, you know, the .com.au yeah, <laughs> will work much better for our guys, I think. You know, I agree with that. You know, I, you know my, my fund, I'm so privileged that it is sold globally. So you can actually find the insights on, on almost every website. So, you know, every investor can, can look at the insights in, in Japanese or, or in Korean or in English on any of the websites. There's, oh. there's a lot out there. You might find that there's some listeners who actually would prefer to read it in their original language. There you go. Ahmed Loder from Fidelity International, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you, Gemma. It's always a pleasure. Thank you so much for listening. Also, as always, we love hearing from you. I know Amit was, uh, was one of your favorites earlier, which was why we've been lucky enough to speak to him again. We love getting your feedback. We love getting your questions. Please just email us at yourwealth@nab.com.au, and I look forward to speaking to you again soon. I'm Gemma Dale. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening to Your Wealth with Gemma Dale. To stay up to date, please subscribe to this podcast series or email us at yourwealth.com at nab.com.au. Please note that any advice provided in this podcast has been prepared without taking into account your objectives, financial circumstances or needs. Before acting, you should consider the appropriateness of the information. To find out more, please visit nab.com.au.